This is Omo. 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 Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Omo. I'm Jerry Lynn here in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, joined by Rosie DeLoach in Richardson, Texas. Hello, Jerry Lynn. How are you? I'm hanging in there. How about yourself? Getting through it. Getting through it, though, in the August pacing of craziness. Yes. Yeah, this is the time for, for those of you who aren't familiar. Those of us who deal with a lot of rental instruments are knee deep in in school stuff. So, Rosie, yes. my hat is off to you. I haven't had to Thank do that you. for a bunch of years, but I, I certainly can sympathize with that. Oh, my gosh. Well, you, you've got enough on your plate. Every time I talk to you, you're like, I'm trying to do these 12 things at once. So, <laughs> yeah. A lot of them you can't even talk about yet, but you're like, you're like the guy in this little community behind the scenes who's organizing what happens next year. Yeah. That, that makes me sound like I'm some sort of like illicit cartel boss, which a little bit I think would be more fun. <laughs> Jerry, I understand you've got some really lovely guests coming up. And so that everyone else knows the National Music Museum is opening at the end of this month. Where is that again? That's in Vermilion, South Dakota. I've never been to South Dakota, period. Have you? No. And after okay. this interview, I, I, I kind of want to go there. Uh, yeah. I think that's probably, sorry for people in South Dakota, that's probably the best reason to go to South Dakota <laughs> is the National Music Museum. I, I'm going to have to find out what else is going on in this town, how to make a weekend out of it. Uh, but why is it a big deal that this is reopening? So it's been closed for a couple of years for renovations and remodeling of their exhibits. And to talk with us today about this, we have Claire Givens of Claire Givens Violins Incorporated uh, and Drew Dipper of Dipper Restorations both of which are located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Claire, people might have recognized her from the uh, U.S. version of Antiques Roadshow. Uh, Drew, people might recognize from being at conventions. Uh, he's taught at Oberlin Restoration a bunch of times, and we're really excited to have him as a guest, and we hope in the future he'll be back again. The best way to describe Drew, it's like he's the love child of MacGyver and the Diderot Encyclopedia. <laughs> I seriously think you could lock this guy in a Home Depot for a week and he would come out with a fully formed violin. Wow. Okay. That's, yeah. that's really impressive. Yeah. He's an impressive guy. They're both treasure troves of information. Absolutely. 100% okay. treasure troves. Well, you know what? I, I listened to the rough cut and I kept thinking to myself, Jerry, why have museums for instruments when they could be played? Well, I think it comes down to preservation for posterity. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of these instruments. Yeah, I've got instruments that come across my bench that are several hundred years old. And that's a lot to ask of a wooden object to get up every day and go to work. And despite our best, best efforts at being conservative with their handling and care, stuff happens. 
And it's it's a compromise sometimes to keep these things going. So it's lovely to have a place where these things are just going to go so future generations can look at them and study them and figure out the past because we can't time travel yet. And this is the closest thing we have to time traveling. So far. So far. <laughs> so, so you're saying that it is a retirement community for instruments, but we won't let them die. Correct. It's a retirement okay. community. It's it's not like the villages in Florida. There's there's nothing going on there. At the end of the episode, you're going to talk to a fellow who I've recently learned he's just moved to the Ashmolium. He lives in one of the alcoves behind one of the tapestries. Uh, ben Hebert. Yeah, he, that's where he oh. lives now. Yeah. Oh. So if you guys go visit <laughs> the oldest modern museum built in 1683. You will find Ben Hebert there. In so he's he's like like Harry Potter in the cupboard under the stairs, except he's Ben Hebert behind a tapestry. Yeah. Yes, this is his home now. That's some freaky stuff. <laughs> you guys enjoy all the good stuff we got coming up. We are going to talk about this reopening. We're going to talk to Ben. He's going to tell us more about museum life. Stay tuned. A special thanks to House of Note, a luthier-owned violin shop in the Twin Cities of Minnesota for their support of this episode of OMO. While covering the many demands that we deal with in this industry, from restoration to repairs for players at all levels, House of Note wants you makers to know they sell quite a few modern maker instruments and bows. If you've just done your final setup for your violin and you're looking to hang it in a shop that understands new instruments, look no further than House of Note. Check them out today at House of Note. Between Chicago and the West Coast, you won't find a violin shop with a more finely curated selection of instruments and bows than Claire Givens Violins in Minneapolis. The Givens team is made up of knowledgeable players who take pride in helping their customers find the right instrument or bow. Their international reputation is founded upon a commitment to maintaining high levels of expertise, craftsmanship, and relationships with customers spanning across generations. Every instrument and bow offered at Claire Givens Violins is set up in their very own workshop by an experienced team of restorers and makers under the longtime expert leadership of Douglas Lay. Need a checkup or a more extensive restoration? The workshop is known for its attention to sound and response, and players come from all over for this unmatched level of precision and care. If you're an early music player, check out Dipper Restorations, where world-renowned restorer and scholar Andrew Dipper specializes in the restoration of historical musical instruments and the making of historic replica bows. Need a checkup? Looking for an upgrade? Check out GivenViolins.com. They look forward to seeing you. So, Claire, welcome back to OMO. Drew, welcome for the first time. Yeah, thank you. How are things in, in Minneapolis? Is it hot there? I mean, it's hot everywhere right now. Not as hot as everywhere else, thank goodness. Thank goodness. And we're getting some rain, so we have been in drought conditions, but as of yesterday, we're, it's better. Thank you, Derek. We're glad to be here again. It, it's an absolute pleasure to have the two of you. So for, for clarification, for people who don't know, the two of you are a married couple and you work together, which probably has its, its struggles. Yeah, I'm not sure it has struggles. We're working on different ends of the business. So struggles, there aren't many. Um, there's a lot of 
you know, these days there's a lot of concern running a business. Claire does a fabulous job of running her end, and I hope I do a reasonable job of running mine. That was a good save, Drew. That was a very, very good save. Uh you know, as I said earlier, we're we're here to talk about the National Music Museum. For those who don't know, uh, you know, because we get players that listen to this this podcast, we get just random people who stumble upon us. What exactly is the National Music Museum? I think I can speak to that. Uh, I've been on the board since the late 1990s, um, so a while. And I've been aware of the museum for much longer than those 24 years. So the National Music Museum exists in the city of Vermilion, South Dakota. And it is affiliated with the University of South Dakota. And it is a collection of 15,000 instruments, musical instruments, of which uh, many of their collections are some of the finest instruments on earth in terms of the makers that made them. And um, the museum is housed in a Carnegie library that was given uh, to the original collections in 1973. And um, it's been an important uh, contribution to the world of musical instruments for everybody in the world who's interested in studying musical instruments. Now, isn't that a grand statement? <laughs> so this is 50 years then. We are celebrating our 50th year anniversary in 2023. How did that get started? I mean, how? what makes a place say, I want to start collecting musical instruments? I think that's an interesting story. And Drew, you can just um, fill in anytime you want to. But um, Yeah, sure. We'll do. The story that I know is that after World War I, when the tuning pitch of A440 was decided upon within the Treaty of Versailles, Wait, uh, I, I can't tell. Are you being serious right now? Like, they never covered that in my musicology classes. No, this is serious. Yeah. Okay, please, please tell me. Now, I have not picked up the Treaty of Versailles recently and read it, but what the one of the founders of the museum has always said is that in, in after World War One, they decided that they really needed to define the international tuning pitch of A as 440, because when all the bands got together to celebrate the end of the war, none of them were playing in the same pitch as the other bands. That's wild. It is wild, isn't it? It's crazy. So that means there were a lot of uh, mostly wind instruments which were no longer usable because they were not being tuned to an A440. And um, Ar Arnie Larson realized this and he loved musical instruments and he was a band director in Brookings, South Dakota and he just started going door to door and collecting all the instruments that nobody needed anymore. And soon the family had 2,500 instruments piled up all over the house and they built an extra building and then finally in 1973 uh, Arnie donated his collection to the University of South Dakota and he had been on the faculty for a couple of years prior to that. But um, he was given this Carnegie Mellon beautiful old museum um, or library, excuse me, to use as the museum for his collection of 2,500 instruments. And this was in Vermilion, South Dakota. And then his son, Andre, got his doctorate in the study of organology, the study of musical instruments. And there aren't many places that you can do that. Um, but he got his doctorate and he was a great um, collector. He 
he actually ran a, a music store, I think, for a while in South Dakota. But he had this capacity to understand where the holes in the collection were. And he was boundless in his reaching into the international market to find those instruments and instruments at the very highest level. And he just wanted to put in the museum on the map. This was always, you know, they were in South Dakota, South Dakota's, pardon me, South Dakotans, but it's not known for its cultural institutions. So it's a reverse music man, it sounds like, rather than going town to town, you know, getting kids to play, they were collecting the instruments. Exactly. Right. And grasping uh, the development of the musical instrument world in, in every arena, whether it's percussion or clarinets or pochettes or um, the history of the violin. And Andre was a, a brilliant man, um, a great one of the great last letter writers. And he would develop relationships with the people who thought the same way he did and um, wanted to put South Dakota on the map as, as, as a cultural destination for those who were interested in studying musical instruments. So how do instruments get there now, aside from things that are historic that you would go and, and, and seek out, um, you know, looking through some of the, the, the online literature about the place, there's some pretty bizarre things in there. How do they get there now? If I wanted to make uh, a, a violin out of uh, titanium and five, 10 years from now I die and somebody thinks it should go in there. Uh, is there a process for that or? Their concerns have changed drastically because of the amount of collecting that was done in the last 40 of the, of the 50 years. And so there's pretty stringent uh, regulations now about accepting donations. So most of the instruments have been donated. Okay. There's been a few collections, like the Witten collection, that all of us in the violin world are interested in, that was purchased. And that's an interesting story in and of itself on how the Witten collection got, got, got there. But the majority of the collections have been donated. Like as large chunks, not as individual things? Or are they going and seeking out certain pieces and procuring them for the museum? Not so much anymore. Okay. Yeah, if, if something comes up in, say, an auction, if I would notice something, and I know that there's a hole in the collection, which is not where that instrument is not represented, which is these days not much, um, then I might recommend to the, the, the curators that they look at it at least and see whether um, they can find a donor or if uh, it's not very expensive if they need it. So... Um, there are processes for uh, getting instruments into the collection. So you had, Claire, you had alluded a little while ago to how you got involved with the museum. When you were first introduced to it, was it something that you thought to yourself, gosh, I've got to be involved in this, or did it, was it a gradual process? The first time I went to the museum was in 1984 when the Witten collection was dedicated for the for the ribbon ribbon cutting. Do you think, Jerry, you, I should talk a little bit about the Witten collection? Please talk about it by all means. Laura, I mean, it's a fascinating story, I think. But Lawrence Witten was a rare book dealer, graduate of Yale, loved to play the violin. His wife was a harpsichord player, and in his travels around Europe, he would buy a great. Uh, instruments of the violin family. 
And so he visited the Bissiocs. He visited um, Charles Beer. In the U.S., he knew Jacques Francais and, um, and Weishar. And uh, he started buying up great instruments in the 1960s. And he wanted to tell the story of the origins of the violin. He, w he was a scholar. He was a researcher. He was a great writer. And he wanted his collection to tell a story. And so in 1983 or 4, he had a, a heart attack. And he thought, I really need to do something with my collection that will preserve it for posterity. And so he offered it to all the museums around the world uh, who might be interested for the price of $3 million. And the National Music Museum was very interested and they talked to their major donor, Marjorie Rollins, and said, who was a graduate of the University of South Dakota in, in music. And she said, well, this is the theme. Will this put us on the map? And, um, and he said, yes, it will. And so she said, well, I'll give you half that amount of $1.5 million if you guys can raise the rest. So he called the Wittens on a Sunday night to save money on long distance charges. <laughs> Those were the days, right? When you had to worry right. about things and said, you can have the full $3 million for your collection. And what was happening is that all the other institutions around the world were cherry picking this collection. And they were saying, oh, I'll take this, I'll take the Andrea Guarneri viola in pristine condition, or I'll take the uh, Monty Brothers piccolo violin with um, original fittings. And, uh, you know, they were cherry picking the whole collection. And the National Music Museum said, we'll just take it all. Here's your price. They didn't, they didn't bargain at all. So Lawrence had said, okay, it's yours. And... Um, and it was delivered, and it became one of their major, uh, major, major exhibits. And it's now called the Witten Rollin Collection to honor the donor. They never did come up with the other $1.5 million among people from South Dakota and those who supported the museum, but she chipped in the rest to make the purchase happen. Wow. Do you have a favorite in that collection? Well, I think that Piccolo Violino of the... Un the Brothers Amati is just one of the most beautiful instruments. And it's got all, it's one of four instruments that Lawrence Witten said still has its original fittings. Um, three of those four are at the National Music Museum. The fourth one is um, in Florence, Italy. But also I think that the Niccolo Amati from, is it 1627 or 1628, I forget, is just gorgeous. It's just, um, uh, the loveliest thing, and to me, it's like the it's like lemon sorbet. You know how not that anybody does this th these days, or certainly not in my world. But you know the stories of how people would eat some lemon sorbet between the, the courses in their meals to kind of purify their palate, you know, so they could really be um, ready for that next course. Yeah, I just go in to the museum and I look at that Niccolo Amati and everything gets erased. All the cobwebs are, um, are taken care of in my mind. And I just look at something that's pure and perfect and uh, a beautiful expression of violin making in that period. Um, I, th I think my favorite instrument is the King cello because um, it's one of the earliest uh, of the boat instruments that they have uh, built sometime before 1572 
and decorated for um, a wedding that took place in 1572, but probably was made earlier for Catherine de' Medici. And um, that instrument uh, has the paintings of uh, armorial of uh, Charles IX on the back with silver and gold columns and, the, and the, all of the regalia of his reign. And it's stunning in the, in the paintwork. And we've tried to find out who the painter was. There's a, a dialogue going on or has gone on for the last years about who painted it. And Lawrence Witten thought that it was painted by a member of the Fontainebleau School. And um, I think that he was probably correct. The Cremonese want uh, to, to have uh, their painters uh, paint the cello, but the dates don't quite work out. I recall that cello, is that cello been altered in size? Uh, it was cut down, yes. After the painting had been done or before? Uh, after, after. after. Um, okay. In Paris by, I think, Sebastian Renault, was it? I, I think, yes, Sebastian Renault. So during the time of the French Revolution. That sounds tedious for that time period. <laughs> so that, that leads me kind of in a, a, a little bit of a, of a path in a different direction here. These instruments that are hanging, obviously that things are climate controlled, but you know, they're objects that are made of wood. Things happen. You know what? What level of intervention do you do to an exhibit piece? Uh, mainly, it's a case of uh, making sure it doesn't happen. So, good, a close control over humidity, temperature, light levels. Um, they, the museum is very closely controlled for pests, for instance, and mold and things like that. So, the climate control is really pretty good in the museum and now we have the the new museum building it's even better than it was okay so let's talk about that for a little bit uh the reason why we're here is to talk about the exhibits reopening what was the old facilities lacking that the new facilities have um i think light levels were poor um the cases were you know, for, for what they could afford back in the day, the cases were very good, but they're not up to modern museum standards. So we've been uh, collecting uh, donations to replace the cases. And that's one of the reasons why we can't open the museum altogether is that the cases and everything else are very expensive. So we're relying on donations for those kinds of things. And the museum's not granted any money from, or very little money from the from the. Uh, from South Dakota itself. So fully funded via donations. Is there, uh, I'm assuming on their website, there's a place if people want to make donations, if they feel led to do that, there's a way of... of but one of the best ways is to join the museum as a member. Oh. And that gives you a lot of advantages. Okay. So for all listeners out there, go, go become a member. In our process of raising the money to restore the Carnegie... Um, library and, um, and make the addition to the museum that we did, um, we went to the legislature of uh, South Dakota for um, $2 million and they gave, them to it, gave it to us. Oh, wow. So um, they, they stepped to the plate and they allowed us to, to um, 
make this plan from a year and a half ago to reopen this August. We couldn't have done it without the legislature of South Dakota offering us those $2 million. So um, that was about half of what we needed to reopen the first floor of the museum. Okay. Um, I also read something that they have a new center for preservation and research. What's that all about? Well, that's the to- that's I think the coolest part that the trade would find the most interesting, and 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 Drew has used it a lot, and I think that Drew can talk to how makers could uh, take take full advantage of the fact that the Center for Preservation and Research exists. We call it the CPR, and it's twenty three thousand square feet of storage. It is an amazing facility. It's separate from the museum, and it allows us to store all of our 14,000 instruments uh, that are not on display. We'll, we'll have about 1,000 on display in the new museum. So if, if, if I want to go study an instrument or I'm a representative of, a, of one of the regional making groups and I want to set up a, a tour where we can study instruments, is there a process of, of how to apply for that? Uh, how's that done? Um, usually a request. Um, I mean, in fact, always a request because the conservators are permanently busy with other projects. Um, Once the request is made, then you set on a date. And there's a very good facilities there for setting up drawing and uh, photography and things like that. So I I recently did um, drawings and photographs of um, Magini Viola da Gamba that they have. It's only fragments and it's not really able to be restored but it contains a, a massive amount of information. And since I've got that information, I've been asked by at least three people in Europe for copies of those photographs because they are also working on these early instruments from Brescia. So it's not just a matter of getting information for yourself once you've got it, then you can share it with the trade. And then we start to find out more about these makers of which not that much is known. The Preservation Center has a lot of instruments which probably won't ever be on display, but which contain a huge amount of information that would be valuable for makers. Absolutely. And so that those particular instruments can be studied in great depth, even if they are just fragments. And often you find out the most when you get them under magnification. You find out things like... Uh, how they were glued together, what the, what the making procedure was, um, finishing of the wood, whether they used tooth planes or, or regular planes, uh, whether they used sandpaper or shark skin or um, other abrasives, um, whether they used glass for scrapers or, or steel. Um, you get to really be able to open up a lot of these very dark corners of the violin trade as it existed in the in the 18th century just because it's been sitting there and nobody's really done anything with it it's it's preserved because it's in pieces uh it's in pieces nobody's touched it in the last hundred years and so the information is is intact Uh, modern instruments often have been worked on so many times that it's very difficult to get things uh, get data from them like construction lines or or, um, uh, how they were glued together and things like that with, for instance, with the Amati, with the um, Magini instrument, it was possible to gain a lot of data just by looking very closely at the instrument. And uh, recently, I did 
an article for the Strat magazine on the Harrison Stradivari, where I noted all kinds of things that we saw uh, when we got the instrument under magnification and strong lights, which were absolutely invisible when you look at it uh, in a glass case. Fascinating. Do they have um, extended spectrum lighting there, like UV, uh, infrared? Yes, yes. All of those things that enable to, you to look at something closely. Um, digital photography these days is very, very good. And we were able to, um, for instance, measure what the original neck length had been on the Harrison and notice that there was um, probably Viome's uh, signature on, on the repair that he did. So uh, these were very interesting things. Fascinating. Uh, is there anything else that the two of you would like to add that I haven't asked you about? Well, uh, the museum is, uh, you know, totally fascinating. It's um, far away from everything else. It's not in a major city, but um, it's a lot of fun to visit. And it's a, it really is a treasure house of, of instruments, and it opens the possibility of all kinds of uh, inquiry and discussion about these instruments. When you first show up there, Andrew, what do you what do you make a beeline for? What do you go for first? Oh, I'd always look at the King Cello because I don't understand it properly yet, even though I wrote a huge article about it many years ago. Um, it's a cultural icon, and I think that there are perhaps 10 instruments in the museum that are actually cultural icons, that they are priceless. You couldn't put a price on that instrument at all. Um, because it's related to the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre that happened in Paris in, in 1572, I think. And Catherine de' Medici, Charles IX. I mean, when you stand in that room with the with the instruments that came from, in, from the Witten collection, you're surrounded by all of these people that owned them and played them. Uh, so it's, it's kind of chilling when you go in there and you say, well, that instrument was there when Catherine de Medici um, ruled France. It's a, it's a stunning thing. And it's there. It's, it's not in Paris. It's amazing. All in South Dakota. Can I add, too, you said, what else should we talk about regarding the museum? Well, it's going to reopen. It's been closed yeah. since October of 2018. You read my mind. I was about to get to that. Great. Yes, this is the pertinent fact of the moment. And um, it's going to open to the public for the first time in five years almost in August, August 30th. And just the first floor is going to be open. The second floor galleries are not going to be opening August 6th, and that's where the string instrument gallery is going to be. Some of those instruments like the King Cello are on display in the Groves Temporary Gallery, but everything else is at the CPR. So until we get that second floor built, the instruments are more accessible than they ever will be again. And this is a great thing for researchers. So if you have a special project, um, now, is, now is the time. And then the first floor, and that's going on right now, but then the first floor is going to open. And that's going to be a series of exhibits um, that allow the public to really understand the story behind the musical instruments and the environment that inspired their creation. So the previous museum 
was an old style museum, you know, where there might be an Amati, there might be an Andrea Guarneri, and there'd be a little sign that said Andrea Amati 1620, or excuse me, Niccolo Amati 1628, and then would have all the previous owners of it that were known. And that was it. If you didn't understand what a Niccolo Amati was, it was just another violin. It was a room full of violins, or it was a room for clarinets or bassoons, or there was no information that would allow you to understand the story behind these instruments. So they're providing context now. That's the big change. They are creating context. And we're working with this amazing museum design firm in uh, Chicago called Lucy Creative. And they want this museum, and we do too, to be something that anybody off the street could come in and just thoroughly enjoy learning. It's going to be interactive. You're going to hear music if you want to. The guitar gallery, we have one of the best collections of the American guitar uh, Martins and Gibsons and Taylors and and it's a phenomenal collection plus the um, the actual workshop that belonged to um, D'Angelico with mm. his booth and um, that's going to be on display the workshop of Lothar Meisel the last um, of the nine generations of Meisel family they donated his workshop to the museum that's going to be on display uh, it's the longest uh family of violin makers in his in the history um and they immigrated to the united states after world war ii so it's going there's going to be all these interesting exhibits like the musical instruments um that are used in different spiritual practices and what they mean to that practice i mean i i, I find that really fascinating or that's amazing um how come how come a440 is what we tune to <laughs> That blew my mind. That is, uh, I'm going to go when I'm done here and I'm going to call up some people and I, I've got one of my old musicology profs that I'm, I'm kind of chummy with. I'm going to say, hey, how come we never covered this? Yeah, the subject, the subject of pitch in Europe is kind of interesting since I'm concerned with Baroque instruments. And, Absolutely. And strings. Can you research strings at the National Music Museum? Yes, you can. There's, um, I, I went through and cataloged the string collection that they have, and uh, it, it's interesting. It's not a complete collection, and I don't believe they have anything that's really old. It's very difficult to get samples of, of strings that are ancient. Sure. Um, and uh, I, I did have some samples a, a long time ago, but they went to Italy to be studied, so um, unfortunately they didn't go to the, the museum. But uh, one thing we didn't mention is the brasswind collection and the woodwinds, which are stunning. Just an incredibly uh, complete collection of brass instruments. Drew, are they really stunning? Come they on. are stunning, yeah. I mean, <laughs> when you, I, I had, um, uh, I worked with a brass instrument repair person, and I know what goes into repairing them. And, he, he lasted three years and then he left to become an ambulance driver because he said it was less stressful. <laughs> so, Well, on that note, uh, Andrew, Claire, thank you very much for your time and sharing your obvious love and knowledge of the National Music Museum. So again, thank you very much. And if there's ever anything that we can do for you in the future here at OMO, we'd love to do it. Yeah, I think we can deep dive into some of these subjects a little better. Absolutely. You name the subject and we're there. Well, we really appreciate this opportunity because it's a big deal that this museum is reopening. 
and that we um, have raised the funds to at least get that those first floor exhibits going. And we're just looking for our um, next group of donors to allow us to get the second floor open. And uh, it's going to be incredible when that moment comes. We've got it all designed. We know exactly what it's going to be. So um, don't hesitate to become a member and get involved. You hear that, folks? We will be there for the opening. So if anybody wants a private tour and a deep dive into uh, uh, the Amartes or anything like that, uh, we're there. So That sounds amazing. Be there. It's it's an event. August 30th? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye now. Homo sapiens. I have with me here today Jackson Maberry, maker of J.G. McIntosh Rosinant Oil Varnish. Jackson, tell us a bit about how you make sure every bottle of McIntosh Rosinate is consistent in its thickness and color. I find that the most potent tool for consistency is always sourcing my reagents, which is to say my chemicals, dyes, oils, resins, from the same sources in as large a quantity as I can manage. Um, And that's an ancient color maker's tactic, and it still works well. Combine that with just very detailed, repeatable procedures, and you've got a recipe for success. Working with historical dye stuffs and plant oils does mean that some amount of variation is inevitable, uh, but I believe I've limited that to the greatest extent possible. Get your J.G. McIntosh rosinant oil varnish and other varnishing supplies today by visiting woodfinishingenterprises.com. Search McIntosh. Hey, Bench Monkeys. Our friends over at Handcrafted Dart Market are offering even more ways to serve the needs of luthiers. You've used Handcrafted for buying and selling tone wood, violin parts, luthier books, and tools, but now you can use Handcrafted for wholesale. You have a completed instrument and you'd like to sell it at one price to the public, but would you agree to sell it at a wholesale price to a shop? Handcrafted can display both options, one price visible to the public, another price visible to a wholesaler. Get your handcrafted instruments into the right hands today by going to handcrafted.market slash wholesale. Handcrafted for luthiers by luthiers. Hey, everybody. We're back here with Ben Hebert. It's been a little bit of a while. How are you, Ben? I'm good. How are you? How's America? Well, it's it's America. Sometimes things are, well, it's America. Anyhow, rumor has it that you're living behind a tapestry at the Ashmolean Museum these days. Not quite. I try to uh, I, I try to get out of the Ashmolean every so often, but it keeps drawing <laughs> me back. <laughs> so, are you working on anything new these days? Do you have anything fun, unusual? Uh, what's unusual? Uh, yeah, we first found a 1701 violin by John Baker, who was working in Oxford, who we've only known about from records, which is which is pretty cool, because I think my shop's about 100 metres from where that was made. That's uh, fantastic. So, uh, yeah, there's a few a, a few local things. The, the rumour that I'm trying to create my own museum is... Uh, <laughs> Is is something that I I stringently deny. 
Well, you'd be good at it. I mean, you could charge a couple bucks for entrance. Sorry, a couple pounds for entrance. And, you know. Every I mean, violin shop should be charging a couple of pounds for, for entrance, shouldn't we? We should I mean, be. That might actually make things worthwhile then. It, it could actually work, yeah. It so could. It's a good business model. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Donation. Yeah. I keep on thinking that I should just change. There's a whole Harry Potter thing here because in the film there's so many uh, – there's so many of the buildings we used in the in the films, and I just touch and go whether I should just turn the workshop into a one making workshop and charge people for admission and get thirty pounds a wand or something like that. But you'd probably make a lot more money. <clears throat> I think like, I would, hands down, a lot more money making wands. I think it's just the you know the moral thing. Do I want to sell myself that much? I mean, you're already a violin dealer. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> So the topic of this episode is museums, and I know that you've spent a lot of your adult life, and maybe even before your adult life, in museums. Well, I don't think I've reached my adult life, so... Uh, okay, fair yeah. point. Fair like point. Like most of us in this trade. <laughs> like, like most of us. I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, so I guess that's that's fair. I think I want to be an accountant when I grow up. Oh, that sounds great, too. Yeah. There's got to be a, a lot less stress than... Than Absolutely. Selling violins or working on violins. Man, that sounds great. Yeah, real estate, something like that. Oh, yeah. computers. Computers, yeah. Computers. I just been to a, a, a web person and he spent two hours not being able to figure anything out and still managed to charge me £100 for it. That's fantastic. It was, it was great. It was kind of like, this is me when someone's got a buzz. Yeah. And I can't find it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And a lot of times when, when I have that, it's, uh, you know, I lose that time, you know, it's like, I'm not charging. No. And the more that you can't find it, the more they think that you're a moron rather than it's a yeah. hard thing to find. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the days when they've got the terrible buzz and it's just the E string guard has come off, you know, and they drove an hour to see you. Yeah. And like, well, what do I owe you? And you could say, you know, some outlandish fee, but it's like, oh, I do think when I give uh, identifications, and here's here's a tip to people, is, you know, I'll see an instrument and it's immediately apparent to me what it is. Mm-hmm. And I just learn the hard way that what you need to do is say, look, I've got a really good idea of what this is, but I need to check. Can yes. you come back in three hours' time? Yes. And I'll have been able to do my stuff and then I'll be able to tell you what it what it'll be. That'll be 150 pounds, please. <laughs> that is gold right there, ladies and gentlemen. As opposed to saying, yep, this is an XYZ, good on you. And you've just told them that the instrument that they thought was worth not very much is worth a huge amount of money, and they can't quantify the labor that you put into it. So it's like, what do I owe you for that? Or And you know that if you say £20, they're going to bulk because you only spent yeah. a nanosecond looking at the thing. How on yep. earth is that worth 20 quid? Yep. And it's like, you spent 35 quid on a train to come up here. To that yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that is gold. That is great advice. And it's, yeah, you've got to, I mean, there's a huge thing in this business, generosity and honesty are two different things yes and it does not pay to be generous 
No, it does not. Unless no. you know that you're being generous for a reason. We have a, a phrase over here. It's uh, no good deed goes unpunished. I literally, I the reason why I don't have that imprinted on the wall above my workshop is because it's just so imprinted into my brain. <laughs> The, the only sign I have in my workshop says, uh, rather than saying live, laugh, love, it says live, loothe, loathe. So that's, uh, yes, if you're going to have a sign, I figured that was the, the good one to have. It's a good one. Yes. So anyway, back to museums. Yeah. Brilliant. Do you have, do you have a story for us or an anecdote of, of your time spent in museums that we might find amusing, funny, or ponderous. Oh, I'm not sure what anecdotes I've got, and I'm not sure which anecdotes I'm allowed to tell. <laughs> but uh, I think I think one huge one one huge thing is uh, you know a, a great museum curator is actually someone who's a great generalist, and we're all specialists. And uh, there's uh, there is that moment that you're always going to know more about the things that you really like, you know, that you're really into, than the museums themselves, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and that creates some interesting, really interesting dynamics. I mean, you know, what what people don't have on display can be really the most important things. One of the things I would say, museum, if for people who are listening to Omo, is that museum curators are actually cool; they're approachable. Mm-hmm. And they love talking to people who love the things that they do. And if you're looking to go to, you know, the Metropolitan Museum, the National Music Museum, uh, the MIM in Arizona, whichever one it is, actually getting, if you don't know how to reach out, speak to other people, someone will. If you're making that trip, make sure that, you know, you as a specialist craftsman in this industry, reach out to the curators because you'll get more. There's no, there's actually no reason why you should go into a museum and just look at the things behind the glass. That's fantastic advice. And uh, yeah, reach out to me because uh, I tend to know who to get in touch with. You go to museum uh, websites and they've absolutely sort of, there's a firewall between you and the curators. You'll never know who they are or sure. And it's all very intimidating. Sure. But actually, if you're there for a reason, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to do so. Having said that, Always expect to give two weeks, a month, or something like that notice. It's good advice, too. Because then you can get the stuff out. All right. Yeah. Well, that was not a very good anecdote, was it? <laughs> no, but perhaps it's better than an anecdote. That's some good advice. I can tell you the time I nearly dropped the Messiah, but then that's <laughs> that's probably not maybe, maybe you shouldn't tell that no, story, maybe, Ben. Maybe, maybe not, you should. No. So no, that's where that that didn't happen. No. <laughs> <laughs> ben Hebert, thank you as always. It's been lovely having you as a guest, and uh, we'll be sure to have you on again sometime soon. Oh, fantastic! Super. Bye. Bye. Omo is an all luthier podcast produced by Rosie Deloach, Brandon Gottman, Jason Peoples, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you. 
So reach out at mail at omapod.com or call the Omophone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening.